Yo, 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 yo. I am Brad Rickle, and this is the Brad Rickle Brief. On today's show, I'm talking about my thoughts on salaries and negotiating a new job opportunity. As a hiring manager and a former CEO of a company, I have some insights on the actual dynamics and how companies approach this topic. Likewise, I was a government contractor for a decade before I did that, and I constantly applied and interviewed for new jobs. The nature of working as a contractor for the government and government-adjacent work comes with certain benefits, and there's certain risk with it. The primary benefit, the salary is good. The risk that's associated with that, that benefit is that the jobs are never secure for more than a year. Government contracts are set up in such a way that once a year, the government options the work to continue for another year, or they don't. So every September, I would update my resume and post it all over the place, sites like Indeed, clearance job boards, looking for new work because I never knew if in six or eight months I was going to have the same job I was currently sitting in. There were always companies willing to talk to me, but landing a job is a little bit more involved than just simply talking to a recruiter. And when it comes to applying for new jobs each year, let alone throughout the entire year, I've talked with more than enough people in my lifetime to realize that this type of behavior is atypical. Most people don't continuously look for new jobs. Most people don't go looking for a job until they've lost their old one. They get notified that their job's going to be done in two weeks. It's the end of the contract. Or your job's done right now at <laughs> this phone, phone conversation. As someone who has had to be a part of firing people, that's typically the way it is. Like this meeting is the end of your employment. You know, so I don't fully understand why some people are not more proactive in the job search. Even if I love the company that I was with. I understood that a company's loyalty to me goes no further than the money they can make off of me. And I understand that. That makes sense. We live in a capitalist society. That's the nature of business. It's not a charity. So even if I like the job and I like the company, every year I look to see what else was going on out there. And it's like working out. It's like exercise. Because of those repetitions, I was getting stronger at that craft. I was quickly obtaining a lot of knowledge on the hiring process At least I was learning more than most other people who weren't doing it. And what does it look like? A recruiter calls you, emails you after you posted your job resume. They say they saw it on Indeed and they want to talk to you about a certain position. And you email the recruiter back and say, yeah, I got time later this afternoon. Now on this phone call with the recruiter, the recruiter is looking for as much information on you as they need in the shortest amount of time typically. Most recruiters are paid a base salary plus some sort of commission per person that actually gets hired, puts their butt in a seat. So any extra time to vet a candidate is viewed as wasted money. And this isn't the right way, but it's a common practice for companies to use regarding recruiters. So they typically don't screen for things like personality unless you come off as a screaming lunatic or that you like to wear tinfoil hats while you're sitting in your closet whenever you're not at work. Those type of things might get you screened out, but typically a recruiter won't catch if you're a good personality fit for a company or not. And that's unfortunate. There are exceptions out there, but even a good recruiter still needs to be in an environment that allows for them to be able to use those tools and understand those those softer skills might be much more valuable to a company and organization. But anyway, the recruiters are there to obtain as much information on you as possible, including in verifying your skill sets and your salary requirements for the job. And at this point in the process, the recruiter normally opens up and says, well, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? And this point seems to work easily for most people. 
I understand that there is some people out there that, especially if they're not practiced, aren't comfortable with selling themselves. Doing the personal bio, trying to sell myself, came easy enough. But I think the, the military trained a big portion of that. Since I was going to soldier the month boards and promotion boards on a fairly regular basis, you know, that's part of the process is talking about yourself right away and you have to practice it a lot. So I think that was a huge benefit to just having that kind of exposure. But in the end, that's what it is. You're selling yourself. You're selling the idea that someone out there wants to pay you for your work hours. And even if people are pretty good at selling what they do and the skills that they could possibly bring to a new organization, a lot of people, to include the ones that are comfortable selling, still get hung up on salary. And I've mentioned this idea repeatedly on the show so far that people get hung up talking about money and it certainly overlaps with talking about salaries and negotiating salaries. You know, I think it just kind of starts, think about you and think about your job. There is a big hang up for employees to not discuss their salaries with their coworkers. I personally never bought into the dogma. I really enjoyed talking to people about how much money they made and how much money I'm making. I came at it from the perspective that whatever's good for the goose is good for the gander. Because of the dogma, I think that's why companies like Glassdoor do so well. People have less of an issue anonymously going to that site saying, I make this much, so you can kind of research the company to see where you're at. But short of Glassdoor, there's not a lot of internal to the company dialogue that's happening in between coworkers. I think most people view salary discussions as a social status game, and it can be. The person making more usually feels pretty superior about their status, but in reality, it's not about employee versus employee status game. It's employee versus the company fairness game. And when you work for a company, you don't want to, there's a cognitive dissonance thinking that it's you versus the company because you're working for them. So how could that possibly be? But make no mistake, that's the game your company is playing. And it's not to your detriment, it's to your benefit. The company needs to be profitable. They need to think in such binary terms as profit and loss. Your company is figuring out the smallest amount of money they can pay you and still have you be a productive member of the team so you can still help them bring in revenue because that's what it's all about. No matter what you're doing, whether it's BD or operations or manager or you're pushing a broom, it's all about bringing in revenue for the company. And if in the future, the company can figure out a way to replace you with a better skill set, to bring in more revenue, or they can match your production at a lower price with somebody else, they will. And that's okay. That's not your fault. That's not the company's fault. It just is. It's just beneficial to understand what's working for you is that you're helping the company bring in more revenue than you cost. So there's a net gain to the company. When you understand that that's your actual value, things work out a little bit easier. But if that net gain for the company disappears, the company very quickly will choose to move on in a different direction, as they might say. You'll find yourself without a job. And there are a few companies, a few organizations that are out there that are transparent about salaries and bonuses. Government civilian billets come to mind. The military has their pay grades published. State-run universities, for instance, has all their information available to the public. I can look up anyone's salary that's working at University of Virginia right now, from the football coach down to the public relations administrator, that transparency has a level of accountability to it. And most companies are not transparent. Likely yours is not. The reason? Most likely it's because they have something to hide. That's the little dark secret. 
And most companies don't like to admit it, even between themselves, even the hiring managers and the people managing the salaries, they might understand it and they'll say, well, we're good people. It just is. It's just happening. There are discrepancies. And these discrepancies, like they're awkward to talk about even for the higher ups. So they just keep it in the dark. They're hiding the fact that there are differences in pay that may prompt people to leave the company or at a minimum seriously hurt morale, which will hurt productivity, which in the end is going to affect revenue. And that's what it's all about, revenue. So your company tells you that it's not professional to talk about salaries. It's a really common line between companies. Don't talk about your salaries. We're all professionals here. And we all like to be thought of as professionals. So we don't. We might even carry the company banner. And when we hear two people talking about it in the break room, they'll be like, yeah, you know, that's really not professional to talk about that, you guys. How much you make for your work is a big part of the job. I can't think of anything more professional. I think special forces for the military has the moniker quiet professionals. Sure, that makes sense. They don't need to talk about their salaries. It's all public knowledge. There's a pay table. They don't need to talk about that stuff so they can keep quiet. But you, at your job, they want the same level of commitment but not offering the same amount of information. If employees start talking about their salaries, the company might have to start paying people more because someone doing your job with the same amount of experience and skill sets, if they're making a different salary than you, is tough to explain. If you find out you're being paid less, you have a case to go ask for more. I know. It's happened to me. Hard for a company to turn you down for fear of potential lawsuit or you leaving for another job because you know you're not being paid fairly. And the first job I worked at after leaving the army was a master at this practice. There was hundreds of people working on the same contract. And most people are from, let's just say, 10 different companies. Most all of the companies always said, hey, we're paying you this. You're getting paid more than most people, so don't ever talk about it. Shh, it's our little secret. And so the program managers, anytime there was a meeting, they would carry the company banner and say, hey, don't talk about salaries openly. They framed it around professionalism. The same thing I was talking about earlier. If they heard you talking about that stuff, they would say, shut it down. And I get why. About a year into my job, there was an analyst in a cubicle over who was making $30,000 less. I mean, $30,000 less than everyone around her. In my job, there was really three tiers. There was junior, there was mid, and there was senior. And she's a junior analyst, and she's making $30,000 less than the other lowest person on the planet. But guess what? She was a professional. She didn't talk about it. She was making a lot less money. Who was benefiting from that? Not her, the company. When she found out how little she was being paid compared to her peers, she went to the company and her company promptly raised her salary. And everyone feels good in that situation. She felt great. She got a huge, significant pay raise. And her company undoubtedly felt great that they were able to provide her with this pay raise. And then they saved $60,000, $90,000 over the previous two to three years that they were paying her. I'm guessing the program manager, maybe a couple echelons above her, were getting nice big salaries because they were able to clear cap space for a sports terminology there, keeping those costs low for the direct labor pool. And to a large degree, I don't blame anybody in that situation. A salary was negotiated and a salary was accepted. Everybody was a willing participant in that transaction and everybody was happy about it. So to a large degree, it's no fault of anybody's. But then when she gets on site and you start producing and you realize you're getting paid two-thirds of what everyone else is, it makes you question. It makes you think, hey, what's going on? So the first thing to learn from today's show is don't feel bad 
it is professional. Start talking to your fellow employees about your salaries. You can be professional and talk about that stuff. You don't have to rub it in if you're making $100,000 more than somebody else. Think about it as a team sport. A high tide raises all boats. So everybody's in it together. Get over the fear. Get over the dogma. This is a win for everyone involved, including the company. If you think about it from a few different perspectives, if you're making less money than your peers, you have a legitimate reason to negotiate a higher salary. And imagine coming home. Your husband, your wife, your kids, they are going to appreciate that you had the conversation if you come home that night and say you're getting an extra $30,000 on your paycheck simply because you faced your fears, you realized it wasn't a social status game, and you had an honest conversation with a coworker about something important. Most people at work, they talk about fantasy football and their mail's getting delivered late and it's frustrating. Talk about something important. This is important. And when you come home with this fantastic news, your wife, your husband, you might even get the big piece of chicken for dinner that night. That'll make you feel good. If you find out you're making what your peers are making, you can feel good that you are getting a fair salary for your work that you're providing. It also confirms that you work for a good company who treats people fairly. That's worth something. It doesn't show up on your paycheck, but you know that your company's handling you in a transparent manner. That's worth something, especially in today's age. So just confirming that is value added. Your company can appreciate that. And lastly, and most importantly, it's a win if you find out that there are discriminations between salaries in the company and the company's deterring you from finding out. Then you know what kind of company you have. And this new knowledge, it's going to create better knowledge. And you're going to be able to act more appropriately going forward in the future. Is that the kind of company you want to work for? Like I said, everyone wins. You win, your peers win, the companies win. And I'm able to talk so confidently on this because as I mentioned in the opening, I was the hiring manager for a company for a few years. I worked with the recruiters to staff positions and help manage salaries in the company. And I think I'm a good guy. I don't think I was trying to do anything wrong. We would always go into every position with the best of intentions. I tried to keep things even and fair for everybody, but there was still a spread in salaries and it was based on how people negotiated coming into the job. And when employees on the same job with the same experience and roughly the same skill set found out that they were making something different, they typically brought it up and they typically got paid. And if we couldn't pay them, we would try as best we could to explain why. Maybe we were losing money on the position. Maybe revenue has decreased across the company. But when things look up, we'll be able to pay more later. We had to have a reason. We still want him to work for us. Like I said, this is coming from a perspective that I really liked paying people what they were worth. I never tried to pay people below their fair wage. I wasn't trying to screw anybody, but I also didn't want to pay people more than I had to. The line that I said in the beginning is very accurate. What's the smallest amount of money that the company can pay for you to bring your skill sets in to help us produce more revenue? And where did the spread come from? Sometimes we'd be in such a desperate need for a person or a skill set that they had all the power during negotiation when they came on the job that we had to fill a billet. Otherwise, we might lose it. So it's worth paying them more than we otherwise would and losing money on them. And that's where the spread comes from on a program. In negotiations, they start immediately during the hiring process. When you first talk to that recruiter and you're selling yourself, it's normal for the question to come up regarding how much you would like to make or what's your desired salary. Usually, it's both because they want to know how much you're making right now and what would it take for you to come over. And this is the setup. This is where the parameters start forming for the company to pay you as little 
as they can for you to work for them. And as I mentioned, it's not a bad thing. It's just the reality of how a company looks at direct labor costs. If they can get your skill set for cheaper, why wouldn't they? It makes sense. When it comes to opening up this conversation, I see it played wrong a lot by employees when talking about salaries. For some reason, a typical approach is to provide a salary range, and this only hurts the potential employee. As an example, if you're getting hired as an administrative assistant, and the hiring manager or the recruiter, they ask you what your desired salary is, a common response might be, well, thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year. And what the employee is thinking, what the, what the candidate is thinking when they offer this range is, boy, I would really like $45,000 a year, but I'll accept $35,000 a year. The company only hears the lowest number. And on their little sketch pad, they just say, all right, $35,000 a year and we get you. A surprising amount of people give a range for a salary requirement. And it seems to stem from a desire to wanting a high salary, but not coming off as greedy. Or you might not want to scare away the company because you're asking for too much money, so you want to come off as reasonable. And those points, they seem logical on the surface. I get it. You want to seem reasonable to your future employer. You don't want to seem greedy. You want to keep your options open but not offend anybody. It needs to be explored a little bit to understand that offering a range only helps the company negotiate against you because they're coming from the perspective of how little can they pay you to get you on board. And as I mentioned, if you give a range, the only number taken under consideration to start is the lowest number you provide. On top of this, the company's hiring manager knows that you're already willing to negotiate because you gave a range of salaries that tells them like, hey, my desired range is the high end, but I'll accept the low end. You're already negotiating against yourself. And if you're willing to accept less than your desired amount by $10,000, I'd be willing to bet as a hiring manager that you would consider accepting less than your minimum required amount in that range as well. So in the example provided of thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year, as a hiring manager, I might start by saying, well, what about thirty? So you might think that a range helps you by not looking greedy, by not scaring off the company, but most hiring managers are going to look at that as the start of the negotiation and start moving from there. It's a rare company that will hear a salary range and say, hey, great, we're just going to pay you as much as you just asked for in the high end. Like, right, that, I guess it can happen, but you're not going to be talking to too many people that it does because that company, probably a lot of people are going to be playing for it. Going to be a lot of competition in those jobs. So when you think about going into a new job, applying for new jobs that are out there, offer a number that you will actually accept. Even better, offer a number that anything lower than that, you would say no to. A specific number of 42,000 instead of 35 to 45,000 is much improved. From a company standpoint, it's fair to say that they already understand if they offer you more than what you're asking for, you'll accept it. And that's what you're trying to get of offering that range anyway. You're hoping to get that high-end number, but now you know you likely won't. And from a company standpoint, they already know that you'll say yes to more money. In addressing the point that you don't want to offend the company or appearing greedy is worth just a few more bullet points. Don't worry about that because it's in the company's best interest to keep their pool of potential hires as large as possible for anything in the future. They're not trying to exclude anybody. It might be an office administrator job, and you can ask for $200,000 a year. They might chuckle. They might laugh in your face. 
They might tell you that they can't meet those salary expectations, but what they're not going to do, they're not going to put you on a do not hire list. There's not some big blackboard in the recruiter's office that says, don't hire Brad Rickle because he asked for too much money because they want as many possible people that could potentially fill a spot in the future because it helps their commissions. So even if you're asking for too much money, if you apply for the next job opening that they have, the recruiter is going to get a hold of you because they want to fill that job position. So don't worry about offending the company. There's no list of potential candidates who ask for too much money and to never call them again. And if you're able, if you have that kind of leverage, if you're applying for jobs, it's even better to ask the company first what the salary range is that they're offering for the position instead of them coming to you asking what your desired salary requirement is. That gives you the most advantage in negotiating. And it's not often practiced. Recruiters, hiring managers, they're going to be reluctant to offer up that piece of information first. But it is possible if they need you bad enough. And you can kind of get that sense as things move along. If you tell the recruiter that you don't feel comfortable offering your salary requirements at this stage in the process, and the hiring manager is getting a hold of you and getting a hold of you again and saying how bad they need you, then maybe, yeah, hold your ground, see what happens. I don't know how bad you need the new job. I suspect that people with full stack development or highly competent data scientists can make these type of demands right now in the job market. And the company knows that they have to be paying people appropriately. Otherwise, they won't get them. But there's some hope in the company's mind that they can get you and your skills for a little bit less. So the two things to remember that we've talked about, talk to your fellow coworkers about how much you make. It helps everyone. If you're ever hesitant about this point, remember that it's you versus the company, but not in a highly competitive do or die way. The company needs to do well in order to exist to pay you your salary, but the company is coming at it from a direct labor cost perspective, so you can as well and feel just fine about it. Remember, the president of the company, they won't miss a mortgage payment just to pay your salary for a few pay cycles if things are going really bad. So it's all business from both perspectives, from both sides. It's professional to talk about your salary. Nothing could be more professional. Just do it in a professional manner. Secondly, don't offer a range when you negotiate your initial salary for a new job. The company only really hears the low number anyway, so go with a number that you would actually accept. And if you can afford it, don't go below it. Stick to your principles. It feels good. You may not get that new job, but if it hurts to not get that new job because you asked for too much money, then your, your number that you offered might be a little off. Think about it from the company's perspective. You can approach it the same way. What's the lowest amount of money that you'd be willing to accept for the new job? It should be high enough where you're going to be happy about accepting it. And since the company looks at it from the same perspective, what's the smallest amount of money we can offer them for them to accept? Everybody wins. And lastly, a follow-on to the first two points. If you're thinking you're not making nearly enough in your current job by a significant amount, then you should seriously just consider new employment. It's typically easier to get a significant pay increase by going out and securing a new job offer compared to negotiating against your current company for a significantly higher salary. And I'm thinking something like 20 to 30%. Unless you come in there with some crazy skill set that you just recently developed. Maybe you got your master's. Maybe you learned specific tool sets to analyze data. Maybe you know CRM now. 
unless you're coming with something that significantly changes your skill set to the company, typically you're going to be better off just going and securing a new job offer. And what you will find usually is that your current company will at least try to match it before you walk out the door. Laws of inertia apply to business practices as well. Companies would rather just keep paying you what they are paying you. Why wouldn't you accept it too? You're used to it. So update that resume. See what else is out there. You never know. All right, that is it, folks. I really hope you enjoyed today's show talking about salaries and negotiating. I know a little bit about it. If you have any comments or feedback, please email me at bradricklebrief at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Brad Rickle. Music, as always, is provided by James Spensley. Dude knows how to shred. See you later. I'm out.